Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Jason McLean with us here as we talk about his work, how UFOs and Bigfoot prove the Bible is true. Jason, let's get back to your pterodactyl sighting and tell us what happened. So yes, George, uh, so like I said, it's 1992, summer, we're out fishing in this creek, and uh, we're getting ready to head back in. My friend's already gone, and I hear this, this call of something. I stick my head out from beyond the tree line, and I see at first what I think is the largest blue heron I've ever seen in my life. Thing easily had a wingspan between eight to ten feet. Wow! And flew like a, like a heron. You know, it, again, we're well south of Dallas, a lot of cattle, so we get we get a lot of egrets, a lot of herons. Uh, so it wasn't uncommon to see it. It flew just like it, but as it got literally five feet in front of me, as it passed right in front of me, the tip was no was no more than five feet from me. I realized there were no feathers on this creature. And what I thought had been, if you've ever seen a, a heron flying, you know, they stick their legs out immediately behind them. What I mm-hmm. thought had been, its legs sticking out, was actually a tail. Uh, it was a long, stiff tail that came to a flanged end, uh, sort of diamond shape. And it just went soaring on. I got the chance to see it uh, much clearer and for a longer period of time as it, as it was sort of leaving before it banked away again. I was able to see it sort of in... Uh, almost like a top profile, is it you know banked right? And I was shocked, to say the least. Of course, um, and, you know this. And of course, I'm sitting here thinking, like, what did I just see? And my friend comes back, of course, right after this thing disappears. And he's like, "What's wrong?" And I'm like, "Did you see that?" He goes, "What?" That's the pterodactyl. And he laughs and says, "You are out of your mind," and just walks away. And. It was at that moment I sort of realized no one's ever going to believe me. I didn't believe me at first. I thought it was a heron, uh, just a really big one. But until I got five feet from this thing, I realized it, what it was. And uh, like all good 12-year-olds, you know, I had a giant book of dinosaurs. And I started flipping through it, trying to find the kind of pterodactyl that it was. Of course, you know, I was familiar with the pteranodon, you know, the one that everyone loves. It's on the Flintstones, it's on everything. You know, it has a beak and a crest, but didn't have a tail. And what I saw had no, you know, it had a beaked-like face, but it wasn't a beak. It didn't have a crest, and it had a long, flanged tail. And um, so I was flipping through, and I found the Ramphoractoid family uh, of pterodactyls, of, of and, uh, of course, the name for the Ramphorhynchus, which means uh, tooth-beaked. And basically, imagine a, a lizard with, uh, you know, bat-like wings, and uh, sharp teeth, but then on the top, at the tip of its uh, snout, it has a t- it has a, an extra tooth coming out of it to give it sort of this beakish look. And at the end of the tail, it has a sort of a diamond-shaped flange. And um, I realized that's exactly what I saw. But like I said, I you know no one believed me, and I just or would have believed me, so I kind of kept it to myself for the next twenty some odd years. If it uh, was a pterodactyl, a dinosaur, what the heck is is going on here? Well, that's exactly what I said. I mean, to be honest, it, it, it wasn't like I was unfamiliar with. Again, I've been a crypto fan for years and years. Loch Ness Monster loved it. Mokelly and Bembe loved it. But those were always out in the middle of, you know, some exotic location. Um, this not Dallas, Texas. Um, and so that's really what a lot of my life has been about, is trying to find out wh- how, could this things, how could these things have, have, have been around and where are they hiding? How are they living? Over the years, uh, what I've come to find is a lot of people have seen pterodactyls 
even here in the, in the United States, as far north as Oklahoma, uh, some people have seen larger ones flying as far north as Alaska, but they seem to be fairly common around the Rio Grande uh, Valley. Uh, we get a lot of reports out of there. Now the question becomes, how are they still alive? And that's sort of where I go back to what the book is about. If uh, any, any model, any scientific model has to be able to make predictions, right? And those predictions have to be testable. Well, if, you ha- if, the, if the biblical model, regardless if you're a young earth creationist or a guided evolutionist or, or however you want to you know, interpret those scriptures, the common theme is there was an event that wiped out almost all life on the planet. Right. And that anything that survived came through it. And it wasn't 65 million years ago. It was much more recent than that. How recent is up for debate. But that the dinosaurs and what we'd call Pleistocene animals and all these other things existed much more recently than what we would commonly believe now. See, I think the Loch Ness Monster is a plesiosaur, one of those finned uh, dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah well, that is, that is definitely one possibility. I'm actually 50-50 on that one, um, but that's a different kettle of fish. Um, but specifically, the, you know, particularly the marine animals could have survived very easily, you know, something, particularly a cataclysmic event like a flood. But when you have these vertebrates, again, some of them would have adapted to life in a, in a new environment. Some would have remained the same. But the fact is they would have stayed, you know, the relic populations, they would have been very, very small, maybe even hunted because they would have been inherently dangerous or alien to people. Um, would have stayed isolated. And then as humans moved into their populations, they would have wiped them out. Um, because, again, they would have seemed very, very strange. And anything that seems weird to us, we like to destroy. That's just how humans roll. And um, we see a lot of that in, in, really, when you go back to the stories of the Knight's Tales. In fact, one of the things I started doing as an artist, and uh, a love of art, his- of art history, I noticed that there was a definitive point where... When we think of the with a dragon tail, that flanged diamond-shaped tail actually emerges in artwork. And because you go back to the Babylonians, they had dragons, they didn't have flanged tails. The Egyptians had dragons, they didn't have flanged tails. But in Europe, the wyvern, and originally it doesn't have a flanged tail, but around the 14th and 15th century, that flanged tail evolved, or, or appears just out of nowhere in artwork. And what I found was there were records of a small dragon being killed in, uh, again, about the late 14th century, mm-hmm. and stuffed in, and brought to Paris, where it was on display for years. Now, again, they didn't have a lot of, all the chemicals we have to preserve the body, so it, so it would decay. They would build a gaff of it, or a, an, an approximation of it, out of other animals, and they would put that on display later. It's that secondary creation that was on display and was drawn by several artists uh, later in that century. Uh, you can actually go and find them online. Uh, just, uh, it, it, but it, it's a very decayed skeleton, and it's clearly a gaff. But what's interesting is what it shows in the timing. It has what I believe it was the, they believe it to be the, fa- the skull of an ermine, which is a type of weasel. But they put a tooth at the very tip of its snout. Uh, two of the two of the three surviving etchings show it that has a you know a set of wings, but they put three claws on it, and it only has one set of legs and it has a long long tail. And it's at that time that the flange starts to emerge in dragon artwork. And of course, uh, most of your medieval bestiaries seem to indicate the dragons were very rare at that time. And so it's led me to conclude that what happened was that ra- a ramphractoid species survived 
and at least existed in Europe for a while, was probably either wiped out or has become very, very endangered. But that during that period, one was killed and put on display, and the artists were able to actually see it. Instead of being people, instead of uh, them being, you know, the descriptions of these creatures being relayed to an artist later, and many of these artists didn't understand how people saw it. They didn't understand how to pull out the necessary information. So they end up drawing something that's that looks very weird to us, right? They said, well, like the cockatrix. It, you know, they describe it as having the head of a chicken and the body of a chicken, but the tail and legs of a dragon. So when these artists would draw it, that's exactly how they would draw it. And it looks very, very bizarre. And until you realize that within the last 20 years or so, well, we've discovered that many theropods, or the, two, the, the bipedal dinosaurs like a velociraptor or a T-Rex, may have had feathers. In fact, some very had a form of proto-feather on them. Well, if you're some peasant living in, you know, Uzbekistan in the Middle Ages, and, you know, the only thing you have is a chicken, uh, you know, you don't know what a dinosaur is, you don't know what these things are, and you see something like that, what do you describe it as? Well, it would look like a chicken, but a dragon also. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of artwork just depicts what seems to be very fan, particularly ancient artwork, not the modern ones where we've, you know, we've, we've turned them into fantasy, but they describe, they are artists trying to rec- recreate what someone has told them in a way that only in a language they had, that they had available to them. And, um, so as I started realizing that, I could, you can sort of track them throughout history. They show up again and again and again. But again, the only reason they could do that and remain so relatively unchanged from how we see them in the fossil record is if they died very, very recently, which matches the biblical story. And that would be an amazing story. Now let's talk about the UFOs in the Bible as well. What have you discovered there? Well, the, the interesting thing is people talk about you know, UFOs in the Bible, and the answer to that is, well, yes and no. The main assumption that people make about angelic beings, um, because it's a very complicated topic, is that they seem to assume they have supernatural powers like Superman and can fly, they have wings, they can teleport, they can do all these fancy stuff we see in movies. But when you look at the scriptures very specifically, yes, there seem to be higher orders of angels that can do that, although I would argue most of those cases... Uh, the person who's talking seems to be in a trance-like state, right? So it's a, it's a vision that this is going on. So it may not be a physical event that's describing all these fancy powers. It's more just they're being, you know, they're being shown things. Um, but when we get a chance to see angels in their natural form, like when Elijah uh, see, you know, opens the, or asks for God to open the eyes of Elisha, his, his compatriot, he describes seeing angels in chariots. And when Elijah himself is, is, is taken in a fiery whirlwind that talks about chariots, it does appear that angel that angelic orders are made of a material. These are not, you know, we think of angels as being almost a, a psychic entity, right? Uh, non-corporeal, non-material in any form. But that doesn't seem to be true. They seem hmm. to be very similar to us in a lot of respects, just different. And it would make sense that since we are tool users, we have vehicles that we can travel in, that they would do the same. A lot of UFO sightings seem to be, or, or, you know, you have your orbs, which seem to be just them in energy form, right? These are, inter- these are basically, uh, to rip off Star Trek, beings of pure energy. So we would see them as orbs. We would see them probably as more, you know, mathematical shapes than something we would see as a living creature, per se. And so it wouldn't be very strange to see 
a large or a very powerful uh, angel is a large orb, and perhaps an individual angel is a single orb. But perhaps when they have to interact with our reality, that they would need a form of craft. They would be bound by gravity. They just We just don't see them and interact with them in a natural sense. So the idea that they would have an external form of locomotion makes perfect sense. Uh, and, it, it, and it's consistent with what we actually see in Scripture. But more importantly... The question we have to ask is, if there are good and bad angels, would we assume that God would allow his bad, his bad angels to retain all of the weapons and, to, and, and say, vehicles that, they, that God had supplied them originally? Or would he take those away? What military force allows their enemy to maintain uh, armaments that they've been given? You don't. It wouldn't surprise me if they actually needed to make vehicles out of mater- out of earthbound materials to interact with our universe uh, because they are now operating without the you know the material supplied to them by God but where so do you think UFOs, uh, don't get me wrong most UFOs I'd even say are probably black projects by the government man-made objects uh, that are just very very unique they're right. exotic but you, you only need that's one that's extraterrestrial right but the things that are extraterrestrial I think are you know, they're clearly extraterrestrial. I think you do have non-metallic or non-material uh, objects that are, that are orbs that seem to do fantastic things. Those are energy craft. Mm-hmm. And you do have a physical craft that would carry, again, uh, probably the fallen angels that had to have their, that had their, wep- their, uh, or their vehicles and weaponry taken away, or even their Nephilim offspring. The Nephilim, you know, if... If any of those have survived to the present day, they are physical creatures and would need to have aircraft. And again, their their parents are smart enough to make them. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.